There's no better time to become a member of the DSR network. Later this month, we'll be announcing a major media partnership to our ever-expanding lineup of podcasts, bringing you even more insight and analysis than ever before. Members enjoy an ad-free listening experience, bonus content for virtually all of our shows, an invitation to the member-only Slack community, an evening newsletter recapping the day's top stories, and more. Best of all, if you become a member in the month of October, you can take 50% off the membership price for the first month. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code SPOOKY at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code SPOOKY. Thank you very much for your support. Hi, this is Riley Fessler. In lieu of our normal From the Archive and From the Silo episodes this weekend, we're bringing you the first two episodes from our Road to COP28 series. This series covers one of the world's most important issues, climate change. There's still a lot more to come from this series, including three more panels, as well as one-on-one interviews with some of the most important voices in climate activism. We hope you enjoy and look forward to future episodes. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to a special limited series of podcasts from the DSR Network. No issue is more important to the world than climate change. Later this year, world leaders will gather in Dubai for COP28, the most important international summit at which critical climate issues are discussed. This series of podcasts will look at the crucial issues to be discussed at COP28 from the perspective of leading experts from around the world. Each of the podcasts will feature elements from a series of five live expert roundtables we convened to explore the road to COP28 and beyond. Each of the roundtables will be hosted by highly regarded leaders from the climate and international affairs communities. The discussions are presented as they happened, live and without editing. We were very fortunate to have as the chairperson of our initial roundtable discussion, Rachel Kite. Rachel is Dean Emerita and a professor of practice at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University. She has previously served as special representative of the UN Secretary General and Chief Executive Officer of Sustainable Development for All. Also, she served as World Bank Vice President and a special envoy for climate change. This series of programs has been sponsored in part by a grant from the UAE Embassy in the United States. The UAE is the host nation for COP28. However, it should be noted for this, as for all DSR podcasts, all content is completely editorially independent, and each of the independent share people of the roundtables has been solely responsible for the direction and substantive focus of the discussions. Now, on to the discussion. 
the first in our special series, The Road to COP28. We hope you will join us each and every week from now through COP28 to hear more unique perspectives on this vital event and the issues to be discussed there. The discussion began with a brief one-on-one exchange between Rachel and Majid al-Suwaidi, the Director General of COP28. Following the discussion with Majid al-Suwaidi, the roundtable began. We go now to the chairperson, Rachel Kite. So we are really uh, honored to be joined by uh, Ambassador Majid al-Suwaidi, who, um, and we're recording this on the first day of the high-level week of the General Assembly in New York, and it's raining, and um, logistical nightmare that it is. I'm really delighted we were able to find time to talk. Um, Ambassador Majid is the, the Director General of COP28, um, so uh, the, the person on whom all of the pressures of delivery uh, fall. He has had a long diplomatic career, and was a former negotiator in the climate talks for the UAE uh, and played a critical role, really, in the delivery of the Paris Agreement. Earlier in his career, he was a geologist for for ADNOC, the state and oil company uh, for for the Emirates. And so it can look at the the challenges of climate action from all angles. So, Majid, with two and a half months to go, uh, by my calculation, I'm sure you can count down to days and minutes, seconds maybe. We've just had an Africa Climate Summit. We've just had a G20 where these issues are front and central. We're here at the General Assembly. There's a climate summit in the middle of the week, and there's a lot more happening before we arrive in Dubai. Um, You've got a four-point plan. You've um, got a lot of pressure on you. You laid out a vision in June, or rather Sultan al-Jabir, the president of the COP, laid out a vision. You spent a lot of time listening earlier this year. Um, with 10 weeks to go, what's on your plate? I mean, and how how hopeful are you for the kind of agreement that I think the world is waiting for? Well, Rachel, thank you so much. It's, it's a pleasure to be here with you, and you're exactly right. I think I, last I checked is 72 days to the beginning of COP. So we are, in fact, counting them the days and minutes. Um, yes, it, exactly as you pointed out, we went on a listening tour. And we, we we don't consider that that listening tour is is over. It, you know, we, we learn every single day how to improve what we're doing. We, we approach this COP humbly as a COP presidency. We see ourselves representing all stakeholders. And in that process, we've engaged with everybody. We've been all over the world. We've talked to young people, women, indigenous communities, refugees. We've been to civil society, governments, We've been to business, and that four-point plan is really a sort of summary of that detailed letter, which you you mentioned before, that we sent to parties. And what is it? It's that we believe that to to make a meaningful uh, step change in how COPs uh, um, are delivering, we need these four areas to be addressed. One is we need to fast-track the energy transition That means we need to decarbonize the energy system we have today, and we need to speed up the deployment of that new energy system that we want to get to. Secondly, we need to fix finance. This has been consistently what we've heard as we've gone around the world is is that finance is not available. If it's available, it's not accessible. If it's it's not accessible, it's not affordable. And and so we we need to really 
get to reforms of the international financial institutions, the multilateral development banks. We need to see that 100 billion that was promised by developed to be delivered this year, but we need to turn that 100 billion to trillions. And so we need to have the private sector jumping in as well to help us to get there. The third pillar is around people, lives, and livelihoods. How do we make sure that COPs are about people? This is the adaptation piece. This is the health. This is the food piece. This is water. This is uh, migration. This is all of those things that impact people's lives on a day-to-day basis. The loss and damage fund. How do we operationalize it? How do we make sure that it's funded? How do we make sure we are delivering for vulnerable communities around the world and doing it fast, not tomorrow, because these people are being impacted by climate change today? And then the last pillar for us is that inclusivity making sure that we are having everybody at the table from the from the activists to the CEOs to the industry leaders to the young people to women to indigenous people we've done a lot of engagement with indigenous communities around nature and nature based solutions how do we make sure that we're bringing all of these ideas and solutions to the table because the challenges are so big that we need to be working together we need to be unified we need to act and we need to deliver and that's what we think would make a really really powerful cop so that's a, that's a very clear sort of sense of direction you're laying out, right, with ambition. Um, but just in the last couple of weeks, the UN has published uh, a global stock take, right, which is the the, the first um, sort of report. comprehensive global yeah report health check on on where we're at, right. And it's 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 pretty sober reading. Yeah. As the president, your job is to get everybody to be their best selves. Yeah. Um, how how do you approach a, a response to the stock take? Because it's going to be pretty difficult if the governments get a health check, look at it and say, yeah, no, I'm not going to really do anything very different. Yeah. And, you know, Rachel, we have we, we do have a little bit of time. I mean, only, as I said, a few weeks, as you said. But we have some important steps along the way. So we have this week's UN General Assembly. So we really need to see great momentum here. And we have the Secretary General's Climate Summit. So we need to have, you know, we, we hope that we can hear from leaders real strong political signals about how we can get there. It can't be acceptable that world leaders look at that stock take and say, oh, well, right? Like we, the, the reason we negotiated a stock take in Paris and I was, you know, one of the lead negotiators there was because we felt we needed to have this check halfway. And we are halfway, the seven years to 2030. Because we, if we can't have confidence in achieving our 2030 goals, we can't say Paris was successful. We can't give people confidence that we're going to achieve 2050 goals. So the imperative is there. The, the, the importance is there. And so the UN General Assembly is a really important milestone moment, not only because of that summit, but also because of the conversations that are going to be convened and held here. And you've been to many of these. You know there are all sorts of conversations that are happening um, on the sidelines in meetings and events. And so we hope that that helps to add to the momentum. And certainly here, we're here as a team in a big way, you know, trying to engage that the community to make sure that they're doing that good work. Then we also have the Marrakesh meetings, which are coming up. I, you know, we're we're very sad to hear about the the the, the um, events in Morocco, and we wish yeah. the best to the Moroccan government and people, um, uh, and and hope that that those meetings 
those very important meetings of the World Bank are going to go ahead. And that's where we need to see, and you, you are you are one of the experts in this area, we need to see the reforms of the international financial institutions, the reforms of the multilateral development banks. We need to see how we're going to adapt and, and reform the international financial architecture to really mobilize capital. And then, of course, there are multiple other meetings and events that happen within the course of the calendar um, that we hope can bring us uh, really great outcomes of COP20. And I have to say, I'm really confident, uh, Rachel, based on the conversations I'm having, uh, the meetings we're having, that we're seeing the momentum, we're seeing the enthusiasm and the excitement and the recognition from leaders that we need to do something. And so we just need to, to make that final push and hopefully get people to the, to the table at COP28, hammering out a deal that will make a big difference. Yeah, I think you, you mentioned momentum, and momentum is an absolutely critical part in these kinds of really complicated uh, multilateral negotiations. And so, um, 72 days to go, yes. So, the, my last question really was about this juxtaposition of UAE as, in some ways, you know, an, an ancient part of the world, but a young country, and a young country that is. Um, you know, done very well through stewarding the natural resources that it has, um, and and embracing new technology. And obviously, uh, Dr. Jabir is sort of uh, the personification of that, with a career in the oil and gas industry, and then sort of stewarding and pioneering the the, the foray into renewable energy. And you know, we're not going to resolve all of the discussions here around uh, around how to end um, emissions from fossil fuels or how to phase out or phase down. But what would you like to see from the oil and gas industry if they are going to assume a role of being a leader in the energy transition that you've called for? You're, I mean, you're, you're so right. I think that, Rachel, that the UAE really has a unique place and perspective in this. We're, we're a country that has built ourselves up, you know, and developed through great leadership harnessing the natural resources we have, but also leadership who understood that, uh, you know, a, te um, a technology or a resource can be replaced by a new technology. I think you've heard me tell this story perhaps before. Before we had oil and gas, we were pearl divers and our economy was based on pearls. And that was destroyed by the creation of the artificial pearl. Uh, and, and those forefathers who built our country understood that very clearly and saw that, you know, a new technology replaced it. So when, when we discovered oil and gas, they understood it the same way. And that's why we've had like a zero flaring policy in the UAE because we, we've had that environmental stewardship as part of our DNA. We've had a diversification strategy very early today. 70% of our economy is non-oil and gas. We have Mustard, which is when we wanted to invest in renewables, everybody was surprised. Today, Mustard is one of the largest investors in renewables globally, and we host IRENA. Our leadership has said that they want us to celebrate that last barrel of oil. What's important as part of that is that understanding that there is new opportunity there, that this is a challenge, but that we can create opportunity out of it. We can create new jobs. We can create a diverse fight economy. We can create resilience within our economy. We can make better opportunities for our young people in our system. It's about that dignified transition into a new economy, a new world that we want to be part of. And we're a country that's running towards it rather than running away. And I feel very excited about that and sharing that with the world at COP28. And your question was specific about the oil and gas sector. I think that what we're doing is we're, we've challenged the oil and gas sector to say, 
hey, how can you be part of the solution? And by the way, this train is going in this direction. What are you, how, what, how are you thinking about your business? How are you thinking about um, transforming your business? We've had that domestically. You know, Dostoltana Jabbar is able to go to Sarah Week, is able to go to those leaders and talk to them directly because he was given the mandate of transforming our national oil company getting it prepared for the future, decarbonizing the, the sector. So he speaks from authority and knowledge. And of course, he's spent 20 years building a renewable energy sector in our country. Today, we have three of the largest lowest cost solar in the world, and that's hugely part to him, thanks to him. So he has that technical know-how. So when we engage that sector, we know what to ask them. But I think that it's really important that these companies start to think about this how do they how do they how are they part of the future how are they creating new opportunities how are they expanding their business into renewables into other forms of energy how are they creating new jobs how are they creating being part of the solution and we're giving them that opportunity and i think that our engagement with them have been extremely positive and they they're very receptive to this conversation and i think that that's great i think that you know we 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 uh we think that they are not the whole solution. They're part of the solution. Mm -hmm. We need everybody coming to the table. And that's why we've, you know, we come back to our fourth pillar of inclusivity. They are one component of it. They're an important component, but there's heavy industry that also needs to have a conversation. There's us as com consumers and individuals. How are we using energy? How are we being more effective? How are we making energy choices? Uh, there's emissions from agriculture. We have to look at this in a very holistic way. And we have to have honest conversations with ourselves about how we're going to address this. And we always come back, Rachel, to what is our goal? Our goal is to keep global temperatures under 1.5 degrees. It's to tackle the 43% emissions gap, which is at 22 gigatons of CO2 annual. How we do that will require everybody to come together and find solutions. And whatever solution works for an individual, a, a region, a government, a, uh, we need to celebrate and support that and encourage that. And, and because coming back, what is our fundamental goal? Our fundamental goal is to keep global temperature under 1.5 degrees. Let's all come together in a, a positive way and talk about how we can find solutions um, to get there. Well, look, thank you very much. You've got a packed schedule, I'm sure, of back-to-back bilaterals and other meetings. I hope to see you later in the week. Uh, but for now, for all of our sakes, given the urgency of this uh, agenda, I wish you all the very best, and I hope you have a very successful Climate Week and a very successful week here at the General Assembly. Thank, thank you so much for joining us. So hello and welcome to a very special limited series of podcasts from the DSR network. Uh, no issue is more important today than climate change. And later this year, uh, just 72 days from now, uh, as we record this, um, the world will come together at COP28 in Dubai, uh, the most important sort of international summit uh, on critical climate issues uh, this year. This series of podcasts will look at the crucial issues to be discussed at COP28 from the perspective of the many leading experts that the DSR network has pulled together. Each of the podcasts is going to feature elements from a series of five live expert roundtables convened to explore the road to COP28. 
Each of the roundtables is going to be hosted by uh, somebody. It says here a highly regarded leader. Um, I'm highly regarded for today. And the discussions are really presented as they're happened uh, live and without editing. <laughs> So I'm really pleased to be able to chair the first of these. My name is Rachel Kites. I'm the Dean Emerita of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. And previously I served as a Sec uh, Secretary General Special Representative uh, for Sustainable Energy and before that um, had a career at the World Bank and the International Finance Corporation working on sustainable development and climate change. The series of programmes has been sponsored in part by a grant from the United Arab Emirates Embassy in the United States. The UAE is also the host nation for COP28. But it's important to note that, um, as is the case with all DSR network podcasts, all the content is completely editorially independent. And each of the independent chair people of the roundtables, including me, have sole responsibility for the direction and the substantive focus of our conversation. So now on to the discussion, uh, the road to COP28, and we hope that you will join us each and every week from now through to uh, November the 30th to hear more unique perspectives on this vital event and the issues to be discussed there. So um, I'm going to go straight into uh, our discussion, and we've got an extraordinary uh, array of experts, uh, scientists, policymakers, people involved in both uh, framing and communicating the issue, but also sort of implementing action based on uh, scientific consensus and uh, where the international community feels priority needs to be uh, put. So um, I'm going to ask my questions just to a few members of the group and then move on to others as we build the conversation. Uh, Manuel Pulgar Vidal, who is the climate lead for the World Wildlife Fund uh, International. Um, he uh, also plays a very important role in the International Union for Conservation of Nature, multiple roles there. But also in this context, very importantly, he was the president of COP20. So we're running up to COP28, eight years ago, COP20, nine years ago, in fact, um, which was the COP hosted by Peru. And it was the the, the run-up to the Paris Agreement in COP21, so a very important um, uh, international negotiation. Uh, I'm going to come to uh, Mark Maslin, who is a professor at UCL, University College of London, and is a professor uh, uh, in the Earth Systems, uh, Earth Systems Scientist, and has an extraordinary um, overview, again, of the science, but also has a very short and very easy to read book that explains everything uh, about these issues. So a great communicator as well. As seems to be the case every year, there is a steady drumbeat of uh, scientific uh, data, research uh, reports that would indicate that we are coming very close to bumping up against to tipping points within the Earth's, uh, our ability as a species to live comfortably uh, on this planet, that we're pushing the planet beyond uh, boundaries that we've ever seen before. We've also recently, in the last two weeks, seen the production by the United Nations of a global stock take. So this is a crowdsourcing of the international community's view on how well we're doing halfway between the Paris Climate Agreement and 2030, when we should meet very important targets. And in the last few days, we've even seen a report from a global overshoot commission. So a commission of independent experts looking at, well, what, you know, are we going to miss the 1.5 target? What do we do to, to not miss? And what happens if we do, if we overshoot 
our goal of coming to 1.5. So it seems to be a drumbeat of, of, of pretty alarming um, uh, reports that demand urgent action. How do we make sense of this particular moment from a scientific point of view? And what response, therefore, do we need from governments when they gather in Dubai at the end of November? Manuel, what do we need from governments when they gather in COP28 and how do we understand this particular moment? Look, uh, Rachel, it is a difficult moment because we know that we are uh, not on track. We have heard because of this technical report of the global stock take that many things have to be done. We know that we haven't even fulfilled with, uh, with the finance target, among many others. So what it must be done because of COP28? And, and let me summarize it in four or five points. The first one, let me start with the global stock take. We have to be clear. The global stock take, it will be the last opportunity to improve the NDC system in its next cycle. That is for me key. And probably we are focusing too much in the process and not in what we have to focus on in the outcome. What should we set in relation to the global stock take that could be good recommendations for a good improvement of the NDCs and to celebrate in 2025, 2026, that finally we have put the world on track? Because if we don't get a good global stock take, we will fail again and we will lose five more years that it is too much time if we are thinking to keep temperature to don't raise more than 1.5. So that is my first thing. My second element, racial, it is related to how important it is a COP as a place in with the political signal it's sent to the world. Because I am used to saying, and probably this could sound like a misvaluing of COPs. Some of you probably remember the ringling circus. No, you remember, remember that announcement, the three ring circus. I remember when I was a kid. That is a COP. It is a place in which things are used to happening in different rings. One of those rings, it is in hands of the presidency because of the cover decision that will join all the other negotiated decisions of parties. And what are we expecting for that cover decision? A clear statement for phasing out of fossil fuel. And, and we all know that probably the measure of success of the coming COP28, it will be related to the level of strength of that statement. Phasing out fossil fuels, mostly, for sure, coal. Because we saw that we got something strong in Glasgow, but that it was a bit weakest in Sharp and Shai. So the point it is that we have to be clear on that. But also there is something that for me is key, Rich, credibility. In Glasgow, you all, you all remember that the UN Secretary General brought this phrase of the credibility gap. Now, what does it mean, this credibility gap? He referred to some non-credible climate claims, he referred to this greenwashing situation in some cases, and he was forcing to continue improving the net zero. And it is a bit true. We haven't finished yet the whole ecosystem of the net zero. Because if you look racial, net zero in the public side, so I am referring to countries, 
But even in the private side, it is clear that there are many pending things. And also, it is clear that we haven't developed yet mechanism to make the net zero more, how can I say, implementable, enforceable, or mandatory. And let me use a health analogy or, or, or a body analogy. For me, the net zero, it's the cardiovascular system of the climate body. Without a clear and well-completed net zero landscape or ecosystem, we won't be able to achieve that objective by 2050. And even in the public side, Rachel, that unfortunately is not happening in many countries. I don't remember the number, but I think it is less than 60 countries have already developed their long-term strategy. And we are talking on 200 countries on the world. So if you have an NDC that it is not connected to a long-term strategy, that means that it is a weak NDC and it won't fulfill with its own objective. And I have many others for sure, but I don't want to take too much time. Sure. Adaptation and loss and damage, it is a key one in adaptation because we are discussing the global goal on adaptation. And loss and damage because we want to see or we wish to see how much we are evolving into this new financial mechanism for loss and damage. And finally, to be short, the role that nature could play in addressing the climate debate. It is interesting because in 2022, we got the Global Biodiversity Framework, a good, good outcome of the Biodiversity Convention. And now we are looking how to make converge our climate and our nature objective. And we are expecting many things in relation to that by knowing, last phrase, that in case of the CBD, to expand 10 more points, the conservation coverage by 2030, it will be impossible if it is not by collaborating with the climate debate. So, so it, it's interesting how much each one of the two main conventions needs the other. And I hope that in COP28, we can make progress on this. Thank you, Rachel. So, so thank you very much, Manuel, for sort of laying out a landscape of what ideally <laughs> governments would, uh, would, would sort of accelerate or put their foot on the accelerator pedal in order to be able to achieve some kind of appropriate level of action. But to you, Mark, you know, how do we interpret the science at the moment? And is there anything, how, how do we get the kind of government response that would be commensurate to what, what the, the, the size of the challenge or the urgency of the challenge? Well, I think the most important thing is that we engage with political leaders to ensure that we get ambition and leadership at these COP meetings. And we had that in Paris in COP21. The French were magnificent. They actually spent a whole year making sure of all the politics to make sure that there was a path to get an agreement. And that's where we got the great agreement where net zero became the new uh, nomenclature for us all to discuss. And then in Glasgow, what was exciting was we got a lot of actual push. We got a lot of ambition. The Italians and the British were very good at the pol politics. We didn't quite get all we wanted. We didn't get lost some damage, but we got strong statements on 1.5. We got the mention of fossil fuels in the Glasgow Climate Pact, the first time fossil fuels have ever been mentioned. But the key thing is the science. The science is very clear. We have had extreme events 
all the way through the last three years. The science is getting stronger and stronger and showing how problematic climate change is. And I think one of the most telling things is that we are also now entering into an El Nino phase, which is going to accelerate some of these events and make them worse. So the problem is that the science is very clear, and it has been for about 20 years. The problem is the messaging. How do we actually get that to the leaders to tell them that basically they need to change, that net zero is a win-win? And for me, one of the biggest problems is the communication. I have a country where in the Daily Telegraph on Saturday, front page, the announcement is net zero causes inflation, which is a blatant lie. So what we're having is a media system, which is actually not providing facts and figures to people. And so therefore, somehow we have to actually change that around, get those actual communications working and start really pushing because we need a strong statement at COP28. What we find is if you see that strength of leadership and ambition that occurs at COP meetings, Everybody says, oh, it's just words. No, it trickles down into nation states. NDCs actually then become implemented within a legal system within each country and to certain degrees actually informs policy. So we really need to agitate, show the science, make it very clear that at COP28, we cannot have a weak statement like we had at COP27 And we need to make sure that certain countries step up and we can get more ambition to move forward into the next decade. Thanks, Mark. Let's let's continue with that that sort of thread around communication um, and bring in three uh, great scientists uh, working on different aspects of the, the puzzle. And, you know, I've always always struck, I think it was uh, Yuval Noah Harari who said that, you know, science needs better needs better politics right that the the science is really good and the politics are sort of letting scientists down at the moment um but let me turn to uh ruth de Fries, who's the founding um dean emerita of the columbia climate school uh columbia sort of really um forging the path ahead for the way in which universities uh organize themselves around uh, what it means to be a university at a, in, a, in a climate crisis, and also the author of a really extraordinary book in twenty last year, twenty twenty, on what would nature do? And I think we, as we uh, struggle as a species to find out how we should be responding politically, um, you know, giving nature a voice and, and imagining what nature would do uh, becomes an important organising uh, principle. I'm also joined then by David McGlinchey, who uh, works at the um, Woodwell. Uh, uh, Climate Research Centre, um, who's I presume just lived through Hurricane um, Lee. Uh, so I hope all is well down on Cape Cod. Um, uh, and really uh, one of the leading uh, research centres uh, on, um, uh, on on climate science. Uh, and David manages government affairs and has got a long uh, communications and government affairs uh, uh, background uh, working in science. And then to Gavin Schmidt, who is the director of the Goddard Institute, NASA's Goddard Institute, and is the uh, principal investigator for Model E, which is the Earth Systems Model. So really, um, uh, again, uh, charged with an extraordinary uh, scientific uh, mandate, but also trying to bring that science to the public. So my question to the three of you, maybe I come to Ruth first, is um, 
as I said in the introduction, you know, the Paris Agreement was kind of possible because there was uh, from civil society, from the scientific community, and from business and other sort of parts of the of society, there was a very clear message to negotiators that you know you need to be ambitious, and we've got this. We 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 know enough about what we need to be able to do, and we just need a political signal, a pull from you, and then we can push. Um, how do we talk about this? You know, seven years on, eight years on, um, we haven't done enough. We're further behind. The stock take says. Yes, Paris Agreement's working because we've got less warming than we would have done without it, but we're nowhere near on track. How, how do we communicate the urgency of the science uh, to the rest of society so that it can create the political environment in which case, in which um, ambitious action can be taken? Yeah, thanks, Rachel. And it's great to be on the panel with all of these wonderful experts. Um, as we've heard, the science is clear. The science has been clear from decades. Of course, there's always more science to do, always more things to learn, but it is very clear, the basics of the science and the problem that we're facing and the urgent need to uh, reduce uh, concentrations of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. So we know that. So I don't think that the scientists continuing to say the same message louder and over and over again is is going to move the needle we need the different voices we need the politicians we need the public we need the people who are being affected all over the world by climate change to be the uh the advocates of change at this time because keeping that in the the we've seen that the the scientists can only get so far we can deliver a scientific message, but scientists are not politicians. Scientists don't know how to craft a political message. Um, so I think we have to recognize as scientists that our role as scientists is something different. It's not what it was for the last decades where we've, you know, developing all of this wonderful science and improving the models and improving the predictions and putting that information out. It's different now. I think the science is to continue that, of course, but also to uh, to develop the information base that's needed for adaptation, to be realistic about what are the opportunities for nature-based solutions, for example. So I think as scientists, we need to pivot and and uh, and the the main voices and action needs to come from the public <laughs> and uh and hopefully in the world that we have which is a we're in a very strange moment in our our political world but that the public voice reaches a groundswell where the um where the politicians need to take action so i think we have to as scientists we need to recognize that our role has to pivot I think I think that's a, a really important point, especially coming a day after, I don't know, seventy-five to a hundred thousand people were on the streets of Manhattan once again, um, uh, trying to uh, bring their point home. Um, David, uh, communicating science is a an art <laughs> as well as a science. Um, how do you how do you feel about this particular moment and the the need to sort of push? Uh, the action response along with the urgency? 
Uh, thank you. <clears throat> thank you, Rachel, for that question and for having me on the panel today. Uh, I think uh, to build on the comments that have been made, uh, it's a lot about who the message comes from. Uh, and I think about that particularly in the context of, of what was said earlier in this conversation around uh, the targets of 1.5 degrees, because there's a, a lot of clear-eyed realism in the scientific community about how realistic that target mm. is. But in policy circles, um, you find people less willing to kind of acknowledge uh, that we are on track and a fairly rapid track to overshoot that. Uh, you mentioned the um, the overshoot commission and the report that came out there recently, uh, but but that's a almost a third rail. People don't want to kind of publicly say that that's where we're heading, uh, and they don't want to kind of face up to the the necessary next steps, which is conversations about adaptation, uh, real conversations about loss and damage, um, and what that looks like past 1.5, 2, and 2.5 degrees. Uh, and they don't want to talk, uh, have the hard conversations about CDR, uh, carbon dioxide removal, which are necessary. You know, if, if overshoots our plan and we're going to pull back, um, then we have to have a better plan because right now we're betting the farm on CDR without really knowing what that looks like in practice. Um, so I think for that conversation about 1.5 to move outside of scientific circles and into policy circles is an incredibly important thing. Uh, and the other thing I would really hope would would move to the fore, and we've heard encouraging things about this in terms of um, the UAE uh, being interested in emphasizing natural climate solutions, is talking about what 1.5 and 2 mean for Arctic systems and what they mean for <laughs> tropical forests. Uh, because um, it, you know, two degrees is uh, has has severe impacts in terms of permafrost thaw, and incorporating permafrost carbon cycles into the larger conversation about tipping points about overshoot is necessary if we're going to have a, a realistic understanding of where we are and where we need to get back to. Yeah, it, it seems to me that we've got the the mother of all adaptive management uh, challenges ahead of us, uh, and. Uh, Perhaps an absence of government governance, right? Uh, the, we look at and we're, we're standing here in General Assembly Week in New York, and you're looking at the international organisations whose job it is to sort of uh, bring us all together and, and discuss these things, and they're fraying a little bit at the edges as well. So we're going to have to have some adaptive governments and as well as adaptive management. But to you, Gavin, um, uh, how do you feel? especially on this this overshoot question right it's there's this real fear that if we say yeah we're going to overshoot that somehow you know people are going to say oh well you know there's nothing to be done and we'll lose people on one end and then the other that the fear is that our sort of techno optimism will just take over again and we'll start running after you know uh technologies which are not yet proven and we don't know the implications of them we don't know the unintended consequences of them so yeah there, i think there is this real policy fear uh, around overshoot H how do you communicate uh the urgency of the need to actually reduce emissions whether or not we overshoot or not uh, how do you think about that well i i think there's some very uh good i, I don't know framing that, that comes out of um uh, the science itself, uh, which is that uh, we have a pretty good idea that uh, 
future warming is related to future emissions. And so that means that uh, whenever we decide to stop emitting, then for temperature, not everything else, but for, but for global temperature, uh, that should roughly stabilize. Um, and that's that's very good news because it says that it doesn't. Well, I mean, obviously, it matters at what point we stop. Uh, but the, there's never a point at which uh, it isn't a good idea to stop emitting things, right? Um, and so when I've talked about this, I I I tend to shy away from uh, you know these 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 targets and deadlines and number of years because because regardless of what happens we're still going to have to be making decisions and those decisions need to be informed. But we're always going to be in a position where those decisions can be better for the climate or worse for the climate. And uh, that doesn't go away regardless of what temperature it is this year or next year or the next five years or when we go through 1.5. And, and I, I, I don't think we should we should sugarcoat the fact that we will uh, almost certainly, I mean, no, I mean, let, let, let me... Let me be totally honest here. We are going to go through 1.5. We are going to be higher than 1.5 for a long time, uh, and uh, we should, you know, we we should we should, I think, probably stop talking about it as if this is an achievable target. Um, you know, we with 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 greater efforts uh, than than have been evident so far, we may stay below two. Uh, I'm not terribly confident on that either. Uh, but uh, you know, we need to be prepared for for that fact. I mean, and and I think we need to prepare the ground for when you know uh, the first year that comes through that that is higher than 1.5. Uh, that that it isn't just oh my god that we're doomed, we're doomed, we're doomed. Uh, but that it is like no, we have to you know we have to redouble our efforts here to uh, uh, to reduce emissions. Um, I, it, it it is. You know, I mean, I, I, you know, having 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 been involved in communication about this for for more than two decades here, you know, I've seen a lot of. Uh, we have four years. We have five years. We have eight years. We have twelve years. We have this limit. We have this. I, I've seen a lot of that come and go. Oh, and sometimes it's it's uh it's energizing uh but mostly it just kind of adds to the noise and then when the time limit goes by and we've shoot or, or the limit goes through and we've we've shot through uh that particular uh target um then uh you know it, it just it just kind of like in toto it, it does not help i don't think uh so i i would i would i would urge folks to just kind of keep on pushing on the you know, we always are going to have to make decisions and we have to make decisions that are better decisions. And that's today, that's tomorrow, that's next year, that's after 1.5. Uh, and that's actually for the rest of this century. So let's, uh, there was a lot in there. And I'm going to just park some of that for, for sort of a second round of questions, come back to some of the points there and bring in uh, David Cash and Jennifer Sarah. So here are two people responsible for helping communities and countries and regions uh, actually implement the stuff that they need to do to get on their pathways to 1.5, their net zero pathways. So David Cash, um, living in New England, he's my EPA administrator, so I sleep <laughs> better at night knowing that he's there. But uh, he's got a long, long uh, career of public service Um uh, on both on the utility side and environment protection side. And he is the former dean of the McCormick Graduate School at uh, University of Massachusetts, Boston. Um, and then we, uh, we also are joined by Jennifer Sarah, who I'm uh, delighted to welcome, who is currently the director for the Global Climate Change Practice 
at the World Bank. Um, and so uh, one of the first phone calls a, a country would make uh, as they try to figure out uh, how they manage their uh, transition. And Jennifer is an environmental engineer originally, uh, but has a long career uh, working in particular on water um, issues uh, and was director of the water practice at the, at the bank for, for many years before taking on the climate challenge. Um, so, you know, whether you're a low income country, a middle income country or a high income country, uh, everybody's got the same dot on the horizon to which we're all headed. Right. The Everybody is supposed to be mapping out their pathways to net zero. And increasingly, whether you're rich or or uh, developing, uh, people are um, being hit by the impacts of climate change, perhaps earlier than many anticipated. Uh, there's, we'll get into the questions of inequity and justice in the second round. But how do you think about this moment, David? Um, look, you know, in your role as an EPA administrator, I mean, how do you how do you help, uh, in your case, a region, a, a series of states, uh, prepare itself a for the costs of the impacts already, but then for the the choices that have to be made in order to get to uh, net zero. Yeah, thank thank you so much, uh, Rachel. It's fantastic to be part part of this um, part part of this panel. I, I gotta say, this moment you're asking me about this moment, and I and I gotta steal the line from Christiana Figueres that I'm a stubborn optimist, and uh, I think at least at this moment in the United States, although it's true, I think world over there is a huge opportunity. There's so many indicators right now of the change that's happening within the clean energy sector. Um, in uh, in the global north and in the global south, and at least from the perspective of the United States right now, um, and I'm uh, very happy to be uh, your public servant in uh, in New England, uh, Rachel. We work with the six states in the, the northeast corner of the U.S. and the ten federally recognized tribes, uh, Native American tribes that are um, in New England um, as well. With the passage of the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law and the Inflation Reduction Act, we're in the midst of this once, not just in one generation, but multiple generation investment. And the United States has, one could say, finally stepped up in a pretty substantial way on the world stage and domestically with real commitments to move us forward. EPA, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, is getting $100 billion, $100 billion. That's more than we've ever had as an agency. Um, and we're pairing that with an incredibly aggressive regulatory um, portfolio, looking at the power sector, cars and trucks, methane reduction, all of these that can go hand in hand now with the investments, right? So we can say to industry, yeah, we need to cut back on emissions to protect our world. And we're going to help you. We're going to help you with incentives. So, for example, just to put some local frame on this to what everybody has been saying, which has been on a very global level. So in the last couple of weeks, we've announced chunks of this $100 billion. One of them is called uh, the Greenhouse Gas Reduction Fund. It's $27 billion that's going to leverage private finance, right? So it's going to create a whole network of uh, national financing uh, institutions or build on existing ones, pull hundreds of billions of dollars out of the sidelines from the private sector, and then assure that these investments get down to communities. And of course, as you had noted, 
there are so many communities, both domestically and, of course, internationally, who get hit first and worst with the impacts of climate change, but have also been underserved, overburdened in the fossil fuel world that we live in. And so we're targeting our deployment of funding, whether it's energy efficiency or solar or electric vehicles or electric vehicle infrastructure, precisely to those communities that not only will we get carbon benefits, but we're going to get local air pollution benefits as well. And um, and so people can really understand what this is all about, right? There's so many people in our communities, they're not thinking about climate change. They're not worried about this crisis that's looming and already happening, but they are worried about their kids getting asthma. They are worried about taking a day off to take their kids to the emergency room because of asthma. They are worried about cancer in their families, all of these kinds of things which play out in these areas that are uh, in the midst of transportation corridors that are near manufacturing facilities. And so bringing justice to these communities is a fundamental part of the Biden administration's climate plans. And uh, let me let me just end on a, on a kind of something to tie together the communications part of this and how these investments that are going to happen on the local level is what's going to stave off the global climate problem. So I don't know if your podcast is going to be visual or not, but if, if you can see, I'm wearing my school bus tie. And I'm wearing my school bus tie, not because I was a middle school uh, science teacher, which I was several decades ago, but I just came from an event um, at a local town near where I am right now that was celebrating um, Biden administration investing in America dollars that are going to 25 electric school buses for this community. This is a community that's plagued with high asthma rates, a community of color, relatively uh, low income in parts of it. And uh, so I was there uh, with local school officials, with the local mayor, with the state's Department of Environmental Protection, and with 75 first graders. It was awesome. A um, lot of excitement. And one of the school kids, we were, I was asking a school kid who was getting onto the electric bus that was there to show things. And I said, does it smell here like the bus that you get on every morning? He said, no, no, it doesn't smell. And, you know, that's the story that we've got to be telling. We've got to be telling how these kind of investments, sure, are going to keep us uh, free of wildfires, of hurricanes, of flooding, which goodness knows we can look all over the world and we've seen tragedy after tragedy. But it also has to show them that this is a bright future. These kids, these first graders in 20 years are going to be the innovators of the next kind of emissions-free buses. They're going to be the innovators of the next kind of energy production, et cetera. So I, I'm, a, as you can tell, very optimistic. And there's a lot of investment that's happening now that's turning the tide. And I know, obviously, it's not just in the United States. We look across the world for partners, for, for healthy competition and for collaborations to move the clean energy sector forward in a dynamic and exciting way that has impacts to real people on the ground. Well, um, yeah, I think uh, not uh, not suffering the stench and the particular emissions uh, mm -hmm. on our city streets and our town streets is a is a very compelling way to sort of broaden. I mean, that I remember it clearly. I remember standing on the corner when my yeah. public school bus came to pick me up. But exactly, it was this acrid kind of sweet smell, and I little did I know then what the potential health impacts uh, for me might have been. You know, being ten years on a bus like that. So. So that's a universal problem. So, Jennifer, mm -hmm. the countries that you serve, right? I mean, so the World Bank Group's mandate 
to end poverty, to build shared prosperity. And I think the international community in, in, encouraging you to have a third leg of that mandate, which is to, to bring about more sustainable development. Um, so many of the countries that you serve didn't cause this problem. Um, some of them are, you know, deeply invested in fossil fuel economies, which they've now got to wind their way out of. Um, and the, the first demand, really, of, of David and uh, the United States and elsewhere is that is that the countries that cause the problem decarbonize really quickly, as well as then find ways to invest in your clients. So, how do you think about climate change uh, with a with a with a sort of poverty eradication mission? And what are the kinds of things that the countries that you serve what are they asking for as they as they um, as they take on board the urgency of the science? Well, um, thanks, Rachel. It's um, a delight to be on this panel with a lot of scientists, and it's great to have. We believe in the scientists. We believe in the science. And so um, also we recognize, as you said, the politics are really, really challenging. Uh, but what we're trying to do at the World Bank is really how do we deliver climate and development jointly um, to the country's impact on the ground? And that really is our focus. You know, and I think if we look back the last year, I mean, the poly crisis is just getting worse and worse. And we're seeing the, the climate impacts. We're seeing the wars, not just in Ukraine. There's other wars in Africa and Sudan and other countries. The political instability and also the debt. So within that environment, we're just also seeing how climate change is just really impacting people throughout the world. And I'm actually joining you from Manhattan. And it was just very invigorating to the march yesterday. Um, it really is. Um, it's true to see everyone out in the streets and really seeing how climate change is is impacting them. And it's not just in New York, but it's in all the countries work around the world. What we're seeing, especially in the countries we're supporting, is climate change is impacting skyrocketing food prices, uh, toxic air, inadequate water pollution. So they're seeing the impacts just like they are in the United States. And like you say, I mean, we really need a differentiated approach. Um, all countries need to step up. And the route to a resilient net zero future requires different pathways, different policies and programs, and they need to be customized. But what we need to know is that all investments in all countries have to consider the present and future climate risks and the opportunities for low carbon resilient development. And that's why we're also delighted as of July 1st that we at the World Bank, every uh, investment that we make is through the lens of the Paris Alignment. So we're looking at whatever support we provide to governments is this helping them achieve their development objectives or climate objectives in a low emissions trajectory and taking into account the resilience and adaptation? So that's a real game changer, too. It really requires every single one of our operations to look at it through that lens. And of course, that requires seeing if countries really do have sound and robust NDCs and long-term strategies in which you can embed this uh, low emissions trajectory. But coming back to this differentiated approach responsibilities, I mean, obviously, the biggest emitter is the developed countries. I mean, the biggest priority has to be the immediate phase out of fossil fuels and decarbonization of economies. And we're not going in that direction, as we know. Um, at the same time, where we can focus at the World Bank is we look at the clean energy transition from the top middle income emitters that we're working with. I mean, they, if we just focus on those 15 top emitters, we could really help significantly move the needle on reducing emissions. Um, in these countries, just the energy sector alone, so if we look at power, buildings, and transport, that accounts for a quarter of global emissions. I mean, that's really, really important. So if we look at these middle-income countries, how do we help them not increase the emissions, but be able to achieve their development 
um, in growth outcomes, but in a more or less submissive way. And so that's where it's really important to the, do the detailed analysis that we're doing now through our climate change and development reports. And let me just give you an example. Um, the uh, CCDR, as we call them, that we just finished in Turkey last year, found that to reduce emissions by about 30% in Turkey, while keeping their economic growth unchanged, so they can continue to grow the way they want to grow, but do it in a way that reduces emissions, they would need to invest about $68 billion a year, but that's only 1% of their GDP. So it's doing things differently is what's important. And again, how do you crowd in the private sector? So it's really teasing out the analysis and seeing how do you help countries achieve their development trajectory in a way that you can also support them in the low emissions. Now, for poorer countries, and this is really um, the crux of the matter right now, I mean, we know right now adaptation is key to survival. Countries are just getting whacked left and right. So these countries also need clean energy to power homes and schools and hospitals and their businesses, and they also need to grow their economies and meet the development needs. But the question is, how can they do that? How can they develop, meet their development needs, their energy needs, their water needs, and do it also um, in a way that also um, supports the adapt adaptation that's so, so needed? And there what we see in the CCDRs is that in low-income countries, we see that they can also continue to achieve their SDGs, their development objectives, uh, while taking account climate, and here it's really the impacts of climate, but this is going to require them an investment of an increase of 2 to 10% of their GDP. So the, unfortunately, the lowest income countries, like in the Sahel, they're requiring the largest share of increased investment. So there again, I know your second part of the conversation will be about the uh, climate justice and inequities. But I really think that's the crux of, of, of the matter. How do you have good analysis? How do you support countries really put together really sound strategies? What are the policies and the investments that can help them um, grow in a way that reduces emissions or low emission trajectory and also um, build their adaptive capacity? So maybe let me just stop there. No, so this is really interesting, right? So 68 billion sounds like a lot. It's just 1% of GDP. We've known since 2006 and the Stern, the first Stern report, this, this is a, the first report commissioned of, of economists to sort of look at what this is all going to cost and you know then it was for the first time you know uh, uh, the, the statement that the, the the costs of inaction were going to be far higher than the costs of action and here we are in 2023 and we see this now from Colorado to California to Florida to Pakistan to to, to all of the countries that, that you serve uh, Jennifer so again it comes down to a question of uh staring the science in the face and building a constituency as uh, Ruth was saying within the public within business whatever which is actually um, we need to do things differently we need different signals and and then I think what we see here at climate week because this is where the converted come right is lots of business sort of sort of saying you know a bit more regulatory certainty and we think we could go even faster um, but of course away from New York there's plenty of people sitting there saying well actually, uh, my short-term decision-making means that I want to continue on the pathway of, of business as usual. This special Road to COP28 podcast was produced by the DSR Network, which is solely responsible for its content. Roundtable discussions were recorded live as they happened. The series was sponsored in part by a grant from the Embassy of the United Arab Emirates, 
hosts of the COP28 meetings to take place later this year. However, the content of this discussion, like all DSR Network productions, is entirely editorially independent, and the views presented were solely those of the participants. The executive producer of this podcast was Chris Cotmore. The producer of this podcast was Riley Fessler. This has been a DSR Network production.